In a world of stereotypes, being called a geek comes with a certain image. There is still that ingrained thing within me that is a little bit embarrassed about it. In reality, geek culture has never been more mainstream, and behind every geek is a real story. My dad was the one who got me into Star Wars and things. Join me, your super dummy Paul, as I continue my learning experience and talk to the real people. I'm a secondary school teacher, so I teach 11 to 16 year olds in English. Subscribe to Era of Geek to hear their stories. He's one of them like, you've ever gonna grow up? And I'm like, no, why should I? I, I like my life, I, I enjoy what I do, this is my hobby. Search for Era of Geek on your favorite podcatcher or go to superdummy.co.uk slash geek. an ongoing series of graphic novels from a company other than the big two. And today, Creator Corner Day, I appreciate this guest's patience with me. I don't know. I wouldn't have been as patient with me as my guest has been. We've been going back and forth for literally months, and it's just been work and life and then shit going sideways and my daughter graduated and lots of stuff. But Seth has been super awesome and patient with me. Um, and he is the writer of the book about which we all speak, but we may not speak specifically. We will obviously talk about it, but he's done other stuff too. And uh, so we'll talk about him and his career. So Seth Levins, thank you for being here. Welcome to Indie Comic Spotlight, sir. Thank you for having me, Tony. I'm pleased to be here. I, I Again, I'm on air recording. Apologize for it being such a pain in the ass. I'm probably the least well-known person you'll ever have on your show, so it's no big deal. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yes, you know, like... Other people who've sat in your chair, Kelly Sue was in this. I've interviewed Kelly Sue DeConnick, royalty, comic book royalty, and Seth Levins on your way to comic book royalty, right? <laughs> that's that's your plan. Yes. yes. Like, hey, listen, I appreciate anybody who loves comics, and I appreciate anybody who has a story to tell and who says, this is my genre, and um, your uh, blatant acknowledgement. I read a bunch of stuff up. I read up on you. Um, I think it was in Bleeding Cool where you're like, I don't really know how to draw. So I appreciate, I mean, I disagree. I mean, it's, we'll talk about your art style as the show goes on, but um, I just appreciate anybody who loves the medium and says, this is the place where I have a story to tell. Uh, comic books don't have gatekeepers anymore, right? Like they used to. Um, fiction, where I dabble, they're still gatekeepers, but comic books, it's like, hey, I can kickstart a comic. I can put it out there and people will talk about it. And it's nobody shuns that like it used to be, you know, when they were just the big two. So here you are, Indie Comics. Um, let's go back before we talk about your this this collection you've sent me. And I have not read Bigly, but I feel like I should. I apologize for not <laughs> having read that yet. Um, let's go back. Young Seth. There he is. Just a whippersnapper in the Midwest. Tell me your comic book origin story. How did you get into comics? And then how did you decide that was where you wanted to spend your artistic energy? Well, I started, uh, I think Peanuts was the first thing. So reading the newspaper when newspapers still existed and print form, 
Um, you would read the comics and you'd see it in Peanuts. I always gravitated toward. So um, always loved Snoopy. Um, and then um, gradually, you know, they used to have comics in grocery stores because we didn't really have a comic book store where I was. So they always have a rack and it'd always be by the checkout because that's where they want to make the impulse buy. So um, I would look at those and I could only get the Looney Tunes or the Disney ones because my mom didn't want the violent DC or Marvel ones. So but one time, so I love horror movies. And I love monster movies and stuff. And one time, for whatever reason, I don't know if there's an air at the plant or what, but there was a Godzilla one. So they would sell them in three packs and they were in plastic. So you could never tell what the middle. You one didn't know was. what the middle book was. Right. And so you'd have to judge the first two like, oh, I think so I hope the third one inside I can't see is a good one. And so one I love that <laughs> there. And I'm like, yes. And so I, I read that thing back to front. The cover tore off and I still kept it. And I just kept looking at it. And, and that's when I fell in love with uh, kind of like the that version of it. But I also got my sensibilities from Looney Tunes and stuff and how I like to write in kind of a comedic style and kind of subversively too. Right. And that's that's a good point because Looney Tunes, I mean, say what you want when we grew up and we Gen Xers, we watched Transformers and G.I. Joe, but nothing was more and Thundercats, haha. <laughs> yeah. But nothing yes. was more violent than than Looney Tunes. Oh yes. <laughs> but people don't think it through. I mean, people got shot in the animals were shot in the face. Anvils fell on heads. People got hit by trucks. It was a violent mess, and that's what we. Wiley Coyote died ten times an episode. Every episode, I know. It, it, yikes! He'd hold up his little thing. Yes. And, <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of deep dives we could do into the the violence of Looney Tunes and especially Wile E. Coyote. And the fact that that's essentially a silent cartoon, right? Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote. And yet, yeah, it, it was just a big violent mallet, you know, Tex Avery at his finest. Um, right. That's cool. That, I love that. And so you actually come from a more of a comic standpoint than a comic book standpoint. So after that Godzilla one, and now you're an adult or a teenager, at least, or you're out in college, did you ever, ever get into the superhero stuff or you at that point, you're just like, just give me the funnies. No, I would, I would, yeah, I would say I'd stay more on the comic side. I wasn't really ever into the superhero stuff. I always liked it. Um, I always, so you mentioned Transformers. So um, Transformers, and we can get into this more when I talk about the character that I created for this. Yeah, series. Yeah. I like, I like literal change. I love werewolves. I love the Transformers, not the, not the stuff that uh, Michael Bay's created, but the stuff before that. Um, and then, you know, I like, you know, actual like kind of wholesale change, like social engineering and things like that, too. So I come from, from both ends of, of enjoying that sort of thing. Yeah. And I think there is a Michael Bay missed the point of what Transformers yes. were about. Obviously, he was like, you know, it'd be cool. Listen, my one of my children and I, we hate watch every every Michael Bay Transformers. <laughs> I mean, like. It's funny how you mentioned Godzilla, too, because I don't love the new Godzilla Kong thing i think they're all oh, pretty bad yeah. um yes. and everybody left that king kong when they're like that was great i'm like no no john c Riley was great and he made you think the movie was good but <laughs> the movie was objectively awful the kong skull yeah. island one uh but michael c Riley is so john c Riley. i mean is so great you forget how awesome you know like you he detracted you from how shitty that movie was exactly but, yes but what i love about transformers too is, and i know that some of my you know some of my friends are big transformers fans i mean it's it was there in the 80s for anyone to see right robots and it's well it's robots so you know of course 
the people in charge missed the point of what it was about. It was about hiding yourself in plain sight and being something different. And like the sensitivity of beach beachcomber was not my favorite, the, the dune buggy. Yep. And there was this really like he had a poet's heart and everything. And jazz, I love jazz because Scatman Crothers, Crothers did his voice, of course. I love him. He did Hong Kong Fooey. But like jazz had this whole separate life that he's a badass, but also he would talk about stuff that happened off screen. His name is Jazz, for Christ's sakes. I mean, like there's a lot <laughs> right. going on there. And so it was so it was it was incredibly subversive while also pretending to be just Saturday afternoon morning cartoons. So it's funny how certain people and the people who really love Transformers got that. The people who like like Transformers and love the Michael Bay movies, they just think it's cool. There's robots blowing shit up. Right. Exactly. Yes. Which is not again. Yes. I that was not what it was ever about for me. It was always about, you know, just the cool factor like, wow, this vehicle can turn into this stuff. And, I, you know, I didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up. So I just got I got the one and I can't whatever Bumblebee, the red car was called. I can't remember what that one was called versus Bumblebee. I had that one and I played with that so much it fell apart, too. So I got my money's worth out of the stuff I actually got. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And those were expensive, right? The bigger yeah. ones. So the little ones, Beachcomber, because like Bumblebee, Beachcomber, I can't remember what the red one was called, the red bug. I know what you're right. talking about, though. But those were okay. like they would fold like in three. But the yes. bigger they are, like I did have a Jazz that I bought with my own money. And I, okay. I he was a Porsche. Oh, yes. Nice. Yeah. And I beat the shit out of him for sure. And yeah, it, it was super cool. Um, but again, you think bigger thoughts, right? There's a reason that Cyborg is my favorite, one of my favorite DC characters. And, you know, it's like there's more there's more than, than meets the eye with Vic Stone. Right. You know, he's a hero's hero and Transformers. That. So that's cool. And yes, definitely your comic, the one that you sent me. There's more than meets the eye and you it seems to me you must have read Cracked or Mad. It feels like those must have been part of your oeuvre because those fe those feel like they're on full display here or no? Um, no, I will say Mystery Science Theater 3000 is probably what informed me the most. That show. Totally um, fair. Yes, that one was, which is not obviously print medium, but um, that sort of sensibility, that's where I got my sensibilities from those characters and Joel Hodgson. And, and it was, you know, it was very cult at that time it still is very cult but i mean they were actually filming in a basement we were watching in a basement i mean that's right. how low rent this was yeah so, the original because yeah. you're from the area so you actually got it on um on cable access before right. we got it on comedy central yep yep oh yeah man. So that, yeah it was very cool to get down on the front end on that stuff and you know you always feel like oh you know i kind of discovered something even though you really have nothing to do with it but right. it is well, cool to kind of it wouldn't have made it onto comedy central if you guys weren't watching it this is true. You're right. Yes. You know, on your local TV. The thing about um, I got to see Joel in his final uh, tour right before COVID. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah he, I did, too. I did, too. Yeah, it was great. They did no retreat, no surrender. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. It was so cool. Um, it was sad because he's yes. retired before and it was just nice to see because I never saw him live before. So that was very cool. No, that was, yeah, that was yeah. my only time to yeah, it was awesome. It was uh, it was fun. That was and again, no retreat, no surrender. The guys on my network, on the Comics Motion Network, uh, Chris and Dave in particular, love no retreat, no retreat, no surrender. So there's <laughs> on their one of their other shows, the VHS Tricks Back. They bring up no retreat, no surrender trilogy at least once an episode. So it was cool to see them do it. You know, to 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 go in like these friends of mine love this movie. I have an affinity for it, and then to watch Joel and the bots 
rip it up was yeah pretty fun oh they, they're great at it. They, yeah they haven't lost it they're good no 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 and i think well and i think but i i get that i get what you're saying is that you were you were watching that and cracked and mad magazines weren't cheap either i get it i mean those no. were not inexpensive yeah mad magazine i did catch now and then just because they had it at the library i don't know why i went to a parochial lutheran school so i'm not sure why they had it at the library sometimes the libraries just don't know so <laughs> so they don't get that i got to see it yeah, no, it's funny too because when George Bush was president, um, you know, he looks like Alfred E. Newman, George yes. H. W. or George W. Bush. So it's like, yeah, yeah. So there's just a lot of Mad Magazine is still in print. Obviously, Marvel bought Mad Magazine now, but when you see Mad Magazine, like during that time of the Bush, the 2000 to 2008, you're just like they just put his face. It was pretty funny. <laughs> um, yeah, and and I think there's something to that kind of subversive humor. So why then? Because your book, the one you shared with me, we'll get to that point in a second where you give everybody the elevator pitch and explain what it is. It's super wordy. So I am curious before we get into the pitch, why you chose the comic media. And I know you've talked about this, but not everybody has read the articles I've read. So this will be their chance to hear you talk about it. Why did you choose to do it in a visual medium when it's clearly a novel? Yeah. Uh, well, so I did try it first as a novel and it just, it was just, when you write and you're a fiction writer too, when you write it, there's just so much between the dialogue that I just felt like I was bogging it down versus just kind of getting, because it's basically a platform to tell a lot of jokes and many, a lot of social commentary. And so when I started writing it, I thought, all right, I'll try it this way. And I got like, you know, 5,000 words and I'm like, this just doesn't feel right. So then I thought, well, I don't know how to draw. And I don't know any artists, you know, who would be interested in doing this. So I'll write it as kind of like an enhanced screenplay. And so basically I wrote, you know, just like, here's what the scene looks like. Here's what the scene in the panel looks like. Here's the dialogue in the scene. And then just keep moving on from there. And so I actually published that or not published it, but um, put it on Goodreads for like, they do review groups. So you review two other people, just not the same ones that you review. So they're honest reviews. And people said they really enjoyed it, but they said this needs to be a comic. And I'm like, you know, it probably does. And actually I have the whole screenplay or, you know, comic play all written out when I try this. So I got connected with uh, someone, my stepdaughter went to uh, technical college and she was in design um, major there. And she got, uh, they have like a group um, place we can put on jobs. And so I just put out, hey, anyone interested in doing this? Got a connection. And we started doing it and he was a student. So it took a long time. It would take a long time, even if he wasn't a student, but um, gradually we got about three issues in and then he ghosted me. So I tried to find him, tried to find him all these different ways, could not connect with him at all. So I'm just like, all right, COVID arrives. I'm like, I have time. I can't do anything else besides work and then just be at home. So I'm going to try and make this my COVID project. And so again, I don't know how to draw. So what I decided is when I did my Bigly comic, which you referenced earlier, I did that in Word using just shapes. And so my stepdaughter said, why don't you try, I know you can't draw, but why don't you try um, Google Sheets? Um, Cause it's a little more flexible. And so all I basically did to do my drawing was to take different shapes and just layer them and mask stuff. And then eventually my characters would come into being that way. So that's how it came to be that way. You're absolutely right. It probably should be some sort of more novelistic format because it is very wordy. Um, but um, this was the best I could do with the assets I had. So necessity was mother of invention. Nice. Well, and again, I'm not against it. I mean, I like Chris Clairbot from the, you know, I mean, I'm not against a wordy comic and especially because you're making a commentary. Um, and we'll talk about 
satire v farce that will have to come up so be prepared i should have forewarned you there will be a satire v farce conversation before okay. today um so anyway yeah it, and it's okay and i think what you do is it's really self-aware of how wordy it is so um I'm curious if that happened in the second, like once you started putting the pictures in, if you were like, oh, I got to have this guy explain that he's talking a lot. Or was that always in there that he was Bond villaining and that was just already in the dialogue? Uh, a bit of both. Because so when you just put it on the sheet, you know, like, oh, this looks like it fit fine in a panel. And then you like try and put it in a panel and it's just like, oh, man, this is just there's like 99% words. And then there's like a guy in the corner. <laughs> and so it's just like, <laughs> right. all right. I got to break this up somehow. And then sometimes it's just like, well, if I break it up, then I'm losing momentum of what I'm trying to say. So I would just create bigger panels then instead of just, you know, the, the usual um, like two by three versions of them. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so yeah you, don't, I, you definitely don't follow the six six panels per page or the Tom King nine panels per page, which nobody can pull off. Nobody can get away with but Tom King nine panels per page. That's done only Tom King because he's him. He's like, I'm going to have nine panels of Batman's face doing nothing on your page. You're <laughs> going to be okay with that. You're like, all right. So you play with that, though. You're like, I don't need six. Sometimes it's three. Sometimes it's one. It's, but it's not a splash page. Yep. It's just a one-panel page. So I appreciate that you played with format a little bit, too. And that was also yeah. just because I got to get these words on here. Right, exactly. Well, and and yeah, it was, it was usually... I would try and so if something was action oriented, I'd try to make the action happen first. And if something was more, like you said, more dialogue driven, I would probably usually put in the bubble first and then try and sneak the character in there who was saying it. But um, yeah, and, I, and again, because of my limited range of drawing, there's not a lot of things to happen. And there, because of the limited shapes I had available, I couldn't do a whole lot. But um, I was trying to render it well enough that people could get a sense of what was going on in the panel and then the dialogue would hopefully carry it from there. Nice. That's awesome. No, and I think it works. I think it does it, it because it knows what it is. You're not, you're like, I'm not Alex Ross. So you're not pretending to be him, right? You're not even Charles Schultz. You're like, I can't. All right. <laughs> when you look at what Charles Schultz does on the, in theory, everybody's like, peanuts are simple, but you can tell when somebody's doing a knockoff. Right. Like, oh, absolutely. He is really, I mean, of course he did that shit for 50 years, but even his early stuff, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, no, no. You think you're, you think Charlie Brown is just a circle with a nose, but he is not, and you are doing it right. Whereas, like you, you know that, but I still think you do a lot of good um, exp facial expressions with the with the shapes that you had, and that was that comes through. I think it's really important that we know what the characters are thinking beyond just the words. So while it is a word first book, which appeals to me because I'm a word first reader. Um, I still do think that you do enough so we know when there's um, different, a range of emotion on our side characters. Yeah, well, and yeah, and the main character is hard just because he has a piece of paper. So, and you know, he does transform, but I never have his mouth moving or he doesn't really have, he doesn't have eyebrows, he doesn't have facial expressions. So basically him tilting his head one way or the other or right. him making a gesture to try and show that he's feeling something, so. Right, yeah, and I appreciate that. All right, so we've talked around it. So give everybody, now here we are, 25 minutes okay. in. Typical me, sorry. Everybody, here's the elevator pitch. Seth. All right. So, so the character is known as Origamiac. So how it basically starts his origin is that he's just, so he's a human being named Orson Thichifer. He's down on his luck trying to meet a woman on a blind date at a uh, protest rally. And he gets turned sideways, ends up at, the protest rally is about um, a termite that's they're trying to save from um, extinction. 
And so they're trying to protect these woods where they are. Orson takes a wrong turn, gets caught up with these uh, lumberjacks who are anti this termite. They make, they try to send a message with him. He accidentally floats, so they tie him to a log uh, to float by the protest rally. He floats right past and no one notices him and he actually goes to the sawmill. In the meantime, while he's going to the sawmill, there's another parallel issue going on where uh, Dr. Seesum, who is this evil scientist running a place called Malefactory, um, he actually has this uh, um, adhesive that he's trying to sell to the military. They say they don't want it. And so he's like, I'm over it. And he has his henchwoman dump it into the river that uh, Ori's actually passing through. And so he gets doused in that. He's on this log, goes into the sawmill. And through the magic of the sawmill and this adhesive, he survives going through it all, gets rolled out as a piece of uh, eight by 11, eight and a half by 11 inch piece of paper and is still sentient. So, and from there, kind of his adventures continue, um, tries to become human again because he wants to be a piece of paper. And he has all these misadventures trying to do that. And uh, again, encounters uh, Dr. Seesum in various uh, different um, uh, plots that go on. And eventually it all wraps up, uh, I think, nicely. So. No, I, I agree with all that's that's awesome. So that is it. So you're like, huh? Because it's like you're like my hero is a piece of paper. So I was like, okay, we should probably cut to what's really going on. You're like, really? There's a whole 200 page book about somebody just a sheet of paper. Not really. Um, and again, because he, you do tap into the transformer thing. There's a love letter to them, uh, like you mentioned Godzilla, but the other monsters, like the Universal monsters. There's a little bit of a nod to them. It's a little Cronenbergian too. You've got some body horror. Yes. Um, you can see all your influences. So you said you liked horror. So when did you, how much of that obviously informs this because all your bad guys are like universal baddies, universal monster villains, and you've got, um, you know, those archetypes there and you play with that a little bit. So when, when, I mean, you said you read the Godzilla comic, but obviously you watched a lot of those movies too. So how did those inform this? Yeah, well, I, I mentioned I like werewolves. So the first werewolf movie I saw was The Howling, probably way too oh. young. I just, that's and that's when they still have practical effects. And so I, I love, I, the, today with the CGI, they always, they're getting that better. That movie but, would, would suck. T- I love The Howling and American Werewolf in London. Those, yeah, yeah I They agree. were amazing yeah, the way they did the, the practical effects for that. And so that was, those were the first ones. And then, you know, you get into the, the other stuff. I wasn't really into the slasher stuff. So Jason and, and that stuff. I mean, I like, I like Nightmare on Elm Street pretty good because pretty pretty uh reminded me a little of wolverine and yeah i like those whole knife hand things yeah so. but uh so that sort of thing and you know being in the 80s it was just like everything was just moralistic and stuff and so this is kind of going anti that where you try to make everything a little more open-minded so because yeah because it was always the virgin survives and the kids who have sex at the beginning of the movie are the ones who get killed and stuff like that so it's trying to trying to be an antidote to that with uh, what I was trying to do. Yeah, because I think the old universal horror movies aren't that. There's no morals. There's nothing moralistic about those. It's in fact the good ones. The, I mean, before they started to become the forty spinoffs and the wives and sons and daughters of the werewolf and the mummy and Dracula and whatever. <laughs> right. Those original original ones though, like the Lon Chaney werewolf and the Howling and American Werewolf in London. The werewolf is a sympathetic character. Right. Yeah. Like the person doesn't choose that. And then we forgot about that. And then when Oz happens on Buffy, everybody's like, oh, right, right, right. Nobody really is choosing. The werewolf isn't a bad guy. Right. Yeah. Like, they, yeah. We were, we grew up with boogeymen in the eighties and stuff. And so everything was like the other, you know, stranger danger, all this yeah. sort of thing. They were trying to play off of that. And so, yeah. And it was just like, 
this is the way the howling exactly the how the howling american werewolf of london even more so it's just like you're sympathetic to the werewolf because it's right. just like that this thing happened to him he doesn't know what to do with it he's just trying to survive and then you know it doesn't turn out so well in the end but right yeah, and the same right and i think there and i think what you do with this with ori is the idea that he has good intentions and i think that the down on his luck piece is really important too because he's not a perfect character he has flaws even after his accident and everything happens to him you know you don't make him some sort of moral crusader at no point i mean while he goes on um very specific uh missions and there's a social commentary that you're doing there without a doubt he's not the hero i mean he's the hero but he doesn't think he's not perfect he makes mistakes and he's an asshole sometimes right yeah i mean his, his major goal in the in this is to return to the down and luck person he was he doesn't right. want to be the <laughs> right there's something about that too i like that idea of not knowing what you have and we all think everything sucks and everything's awful. And then you're like, oh, it could always be worse. And so while inside this, you know, very funny and sometimes poignant and often, you know, absurdist, and I mean absurdist in a positive way, I don't mean that in an offensive way, yes. Com comic book, you still have that running theme of being happy with who you are. Right. Yes. And I, I think, and that's why I want to put, so he kind of, when he, thinks that he doesn't have a chance to become human again, then he kind of embraces who he is and tries to do something good with it. Now that doesn't turn out the best for him when he tries to do that, but at least he has that intent where he wants to do something good with the state he's in. Right, because he does not have a certain set of skills. He's still himself. He just happens to be a guy who can turn be human origami. He, he, um, he doesn't know what he's doing. It's not like, what I love is that when he transforms He's not, it's not the Billy Batson to Shazam situation where when he's Shazam, he's suddenly this other thing. You know what I mean? It's like, no, no, he's still just a doofus. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. He still has the same doofus friends. He still has the same things he puts up with. Life hasn't changed for him in any, any demonstrable way aside from he's a piece of paper now and that yeah. he just trying to figure out how to survive in life that way. And why did you go? with paper over anything else why not a jeep or why not a tank or why not a tree why why specifically because he was he could have easily merged with the tree because he's stuck to the tree he's glued to the tree he could have come out as root as it were why did you choose the paper as the commentary piece about you know why why was that other than origami is cool um there's obviously you, I like Transformers, but he could have been anything that transformed. So why that? Uh, two reasons. One is practical and probably became more of the reason is that it was the easiest way to use the, the Google Sheets that I could to make him into different things. Because it's very rectilinear when he, you know, origami is very rectilinear. You don't have any curves and stuff. So the limited shapes that I had to use was easy to make him do that. And like what you're getting at is that he can transform into other things. So if he was a tree, then he'd just be kind of like a tree. Right. Versus he can, and he doesn't turn into a lot of different things in here. Basically, his one his one real big thing he turns into is a paper airplane, um, which helps him get out of certain situations. And then he also has a point where um, he folds into basically an infinitely long piece of paper so he can help people move across the country and stuff. So, um, so yeah, he doesn't turn into a lot of things, but it did give me the ability to make him become more than just you know showing a single sheet on the actual panel. So. Yeah, and he's mostly in robot form. 
Right. Yeah. He mostly, yeah, he looks kind of like, yeah, a robot or a knight or something like that. That's usually the state he ends up in. Because he needs to walk. It makes more sense to him. I mean, you were just being practical too. It would make, it's a lot. Of, then he's also then not dependent upon other people. I mean, he is obviously, but if he's got legs, he can move. He can ambulate as opposed to put me in your pocket, dude, fold me up and stick me in your pocket and take me where we're going. So obviously he, there's a, there's a sense of self to him that, that he probably didn't have when he was Ori. And so, you know, there's, there is a lot going on. And so when you're writing it, like you, you told us the time frame, but it's not just about, this is obviously taking place very much during a certain bigly person's presidency as well. And there's a lot of social commentary left the right. And we know where you come down, but you also, this is my farce. Here's the farce versus um, uh, satire question. There's a few places in here uh, during the presidential debate in particular that is both hysterical and also like, oof, um, where you walk that line, right? With the picture, the Photoshop picture, which by the way, I love your version of Photoshop is literally just someone's head was pasted on clearly. <laughs> that was very funny. Um, but you walk that line between satire and farce. And how did you then make that decision of when you wanted to make something farcical like you did there? Where, because it's hard sometimes as someone who has a specific point of view to use some of the language and show some of the images you show. And you're doing it for effect. It's never salacious. It's never mean. It's always clear where we come from. But that's when you know you're walking that line. Like satire makes the commentary. Farce is sometimes making fun, but sometimes is the thing. So you yes. walk the, most of the time, 95% of the time, I feel this is a work of satire. But there's a few times where you, and I think Mad Magazine, Crack Magazine, even The Daily Show, sometimes they get into farce. And I don't dislike farce, but like, how did you have that conversation with yourself about when you decided to move it to show, don't tell, or to, you know what I mean? Like to make it so, to move the subtext into text. Yeah, and, and yes, I, I understand. And the scene you're talking about in particular, yes, there, there, I, would, I had hesitation because it's like, this is an extremely bad taste. But I'm trying to make a point at the same time because but you, the point was crystal clear. I don't want to spoil. I want people to read. But Here. seriously, when you get to the presidential debate, just hang on for a minute. No. And it was smart where you placed it in the book, too. Like that wasn't issue two. Like, so we knew where we were going. Like if you put that early on, people would have maybe stopped reading. So it was smart yeah, where lose. you placed it, too. But anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Yes. Um, yeah. And so I was just I was, you know. And I've I've I'd written this I've been writing this for a long time not the, probably the presidential part because things have just kind of gradually gone downhill in the political realm but I've been writing, writing this for a long time um, but that in particular um, I would say the farcical part was you know we see and we talked about this before we came on the show the bad faith that you know many politicians show and where they just kind of go places where. She's like, oh, I'm not really making a point, but here it is. Yeah. And so this is kind of what I was trying to do with this. It's just like, hey, I'm not doing anything wrong here. I'm just kind of showing, you know, how bad things could be if this person somehow got into elected office. Right. And so I think that's where it came in. I was never trying to do anything just to be kind of shocking, although I'm sure it will be shocking to people um, who, who see that scene. Um, and, and it is meant to kind of do that. It's just like, Oh, this yeah. is how bad it can get if we keep going down this road we're going, where people are just going to make stuff up and make people look as awful as possible. And the people who are really good public servants are never going to want to do that. Right. And I think, and, and, and I agree. 
100%. And, and that was there. It was on full display. And I just think that's where I think because you gave us 150 pages of satire before you dropped that on us. And I mean, if you're like, it's a talking paper guy, that's not satire. That's farce. I disagree, though. I mean, that's just the, 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 the mode is a talking paper guy. But the whole thing is a running commentary on environmentalism. On, I mean, the whole reason he's there is because he's on a dating app. And he's at a protest that he may not necessarily believe in, but it's like he thinks this girl's going to be there. So he's like, hey, lady, I'm going to be on your protest. So I don't, or he isn't necessarily acting in good faith at the beginning, but he learns like, I don't want it to be that, like, we learned a lesson, but he does, he grows a lot. And I think that's really important. And so for you as the writer, how important was that? Was that always the plan for him to go on? Because you've got, the one you sent me, it's a bunch of, bunch of collections kind of together. Yep. Did you always know his arc or did, as you grew, he grew, did he make you grow? Like what was your relationship with Ori and how does the things he go through inform who you are as Seth? The funny thing is, is that, so Dr. Seesom, who is his arch nemesis, who kind of tries to, you know, destroy Dr. Seesom, what a name too, by the way. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I have fun with names, as you can probably tell. Yeah, yeah, oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, I have. Um, but anyway, so I honestly, I'm probably more aligned with him just because of being an introvert. It's just like you know, mm. leave me alone. I just want to be because I mean, his whole goal and his I don't know if I want to spoil it, but his goal is to basically have the world as he wants it. He doesn't want to necessarily have everyone you know be a subject to him. He just wants to be left alone. And so I was kind of on that spectrum when I started, not that I was ever going to make the book about him and, you know, him becoming a hero or anything, but I kind of felt like that. But then, as you mentioned, yes, the more I wrote it, the more I'm feeling like Ori wants to become a person who is more in line with people. He wants to become a better person. He wants other people to become better people. And he's not a natural leader, but then when he's forced in a position to become that, then he does. And so I think that's where um, it felt more like how I grew up and stuff where I, I was, like I said, introvert. So I was reluctant to never take a leadership role, but there are times when, you know, I was put into one and then, you know, I tried to do the best I could. And that's, that's basically all I'm trying to say about him. And, you know, again, like you said, it's not necessarily a message book, but messages do come through there. And the one that I had for him is that, you know, take what you have, do the best you can with it and try to help other people become better too. Well, and I think, so there's a line in uh, the West Wing that Leo says, um, Leo says, and it's one of my wife's favorite line, and we say it all the time. He says, uh, hey, there's a way to be a person. That's the line that Leo McGarry said. Uh, and say what you want about the West Wing and people love it, people hate it. But like he, Leo's, and I know the actor unfortunately died before the series ended, but like Leo's the moral compass of the right. show, you know, and he loves everybody. He loves these people. These are his family. This is his found family. And when he says that, he's not coming at it from the way of like being a dick. He's like being a set. He's like disappointed when he says it. He's like, hey, 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 there's a way to be a person. And I think the fact that you've made your, and I kept thinking of that as I'm reading your book. I'm like, okay, so you've taken a guy who is a person who thinks he's a person. He thinks he's a fully functioning adult man, but he's not. And it's only when his humanity is taken from him that he has to think about what that means. And like, there's a way to be a person. And that, so to me, I know what you're saying. It is, a, it is funny and it's satirical and there's like just flat out visual gags which are great and i love a good you know i love a good sight gag i love the names 
the name gags. I think it was really smart that you made our villain, you know, gay too. Like that, you just were like subverting things because you're not, you're saying he's not your typical like, you know, mustache swirling villain who's got like scantily clad ladies. He's just like misses his husband. And, you know, it's like, you've got all this stuff going on. So, but that guy too is just trying to be a person. And so this whole book is this really interesting journey of how to live in the world. So I right, just appreciated yes. that so much. Thank you. Thank you. And, and yeah, I mean, I've, I tried to under, you know, the events going on in our time, you know, you always try to think of, you know, everyone has a story. And so it's never, never just black and white where like someone's a villain and someone's terrible. I mean, even Vladimir Putin, who is terrible human being, he's got a story how he came to be. Now, once you hit adulthood and, you know, you're, you have, you know, enough experience, you should be able to change your ways. And obviously he hasn't, and there's tons of other people who haven't, right. um, but it's just like, there's something in their background that did something to them to make them this way. How do you try and understand that? And again, it does not excuse anything they do as an adult or anything, you know, like that, but just a little more empathy, which I think we could all probably use in this time, um, is what we need. And that's what I was trying to get across, even with him, where it's just like, Hey, he just wants to, you know, he has his little book of poetry that he likes that he wrote, you know, it's just like, this is what fulfills me. This is all I want to do, but I have all these people that I want to try and get rid of so I can just do this. Right. Yeah. And it's, it is because it's always, um, my favorite, one of my all time favorite movies is a movie. Everybody hates in the world. It's Hudson Hawk. And, uh, the, 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 um, the, motivation for the villains in that Richard E. Grant and Sandra Bernhardt play them is absurd. It's just pure greed. And on its face, it's like, there are these two awful garbage people. But when you really want, and I've seen it as many times as I've seen it, which is too many, I'm sure they love each other so much. And it's not even so much about them wanting to just be rich, which is what they say, but they like love each other. And their whole thing is well, if we just own the world, then we're just happy together. Like they don't want the rest of the world around them. And so there's like this weird May- Minerva and Darwin Mayflower love story that happens off screen in Hudson Hawk. And I know people shit on it, but I think it's a work of art. I love that movie. But I think and I bring that up is because so many times a Bond villain is makes no sense. The motivation is absurd. And, and it's because you're not supposed to side with the bad guy. I get it. And I don't, I don't side with your bad guy, but I was like, okay. I mean, I see where I see you. I see you as a person and you don't know, like you said, you don't know how to be a person, but he, because of that, this is just who he is. And he's a man of a certain age too. So he's an older guy who's gay. So what would that have been like for him? What was he treated like? Like you don't get into it per se, but it's intention. It's there for us to think about like, oh, that sucked for him at one point in time, didn't it? Like coming out right. was hard. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and you bring that up and I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it. And, you know, that's, that's the beauty of writing something is that you don't always think of all the things that yeah. other people might know. Um, and so that, that's cool that you mentioned that. And, um, and yeah, I mean, you, you think about, you think about um, um, his character. Um, what I was trying to do again was just, just portray him as something that, because I had more room because, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't defined by, you know, having to get something out monthly. I could do this on my own time. It wasn't like a movie you're saying like with the bond villains where it's just like, you need to do some shorthand because you got two hours to get this through. So you can't do a whole backstory where you could with a series or a longer book. 
So that's what the beauty of being able to do something on my own like this is that I could do more like that stuff. And honestly, the, my favorite character probably, I like um, Mrs. Unsavory the most. She's probably my favorite person awesome. because she's one who's just in the background this whole time. And, you, you know, she starts out, you, just, you think, oh, she's just a background character. We'll never see her again. And then she's kind of the one who kind of does the all about Eve on Dr. Sees them. And it's, it's I like how that works out with her. So, and then yeah, that was just something natural that came from the story versus like you're saying, when you write, I didn't begin with an end in mind. So I wasn't sure where I was going to go. I just had a basic art. And so it's cool as a writer and a creator that you can kind of come up with that stuff. And, and so that was why she ended up being one of my favorite characters is well, that she, she kind of changed so much. Yeah. Well, and that's just it. She, the story, none of it works without her. And I'm assuming that just like, you're like, Oh, I didn't realize how important she, even to you, you didn't even realize how important she was, you know, right. until you're like, Oh shit. Sorry. Yeah, I that. needed someone who, I need someone somewhat sensible on the evil side to make the whole thing work versus, you know, kind of the madman who's just trying to make his, his scheme come alive. Right. Because she is pragmatic. And I think there's also, again, I'm always looking for commentaries, but I like that it's a woman that it's because again, there's a way to be a person. And there's that whole story about like, he respects her. Like she is, she's, competent i'm pro competent women and even if she's evil she's still competent and i just appreciate that there's that she's not you could have dressed and again i understand you're limited by shapes but you could have done different things with how she looked sure there's other yeah. shapes you could have chosen to use for her right. <laughs> that you didn't because that's intentional right um and i do i like her too because i think her arc her journey as a sidekick who, you know, does the sidekick want to be a sidekick? I mean, is that, right. you know, is that it? Like, unless you're Watson, most, most side characters don't want to be the side character. So she is interesting. And I, I really do actually appreciate because, you know, circles are options for you. <laughs> Circle yes. is right. one of your choices. Right. And you, did, <laughs> you chose to not do it. And like, she's almost in like a corset, but right. Um, she's just kind of like a lazy triangle. And I appreciated that. So, you know, she's a woman, obviously the way that she's drawn and everything, but you chose to not be like really bad giant circles, right? In her center. Right. So yes. I, yeah, I wasn't, yes, it wasn't. And, and again, I don't want to distract from anything. And, you know, some women are like that. And, you know, that's course. fine. So, I mean, it's just how nature is, but I didn't want it to distract from, you know, and again, I didn't, that's not what she was about. And I didn't want her to be about that. And I didn't want any woman to be about that aside from, you know, just being a character. I want everyone in there to feel like they're a character versus just, you know, even the janitor I had in there, you know, he had his own thing going on and stuff. So it was just like any character I put in the book, I want to make sure that they had seemed like they were human versus just a function of the story. Yeah. And I think it comes through really well. And I do, I mean, there's obviously you play with stereotypes because stereotypes exist, but you live in them while commenting on them. And that's the satire to me when you, when you say it is this thing and I'm commenting on this thing while doing this thing, that's a hard, that's a hard road. So what was your revision process? Like you wrote your draft, you wrote these guys, you created these characters. Now you're putting it into, into this form. So what was left on the cutting room from that original movie script? How much were you like, can't do it. This doesn't work anymore. Or, Oh, I need to add, or was it, is this the script? Um, no, there were parts that I had, I took out and, you know, like you said, that trying to ride that line where you don't lose your reader, because if you go too far, then yeah, in the first issue and they're done, you want to make them, you know, take the whole journey with you. So I, that was always something. So I've gotten a lot of comments where people read the first issue or the first few pages and think, oh, this is for little kids. 
And, you know, it is not. <laughs> it is not. Do no. not give this to little kids, please. Yes, no. Yes. And so, so that was, that was the thing is that, you know, it, it plays with your expectations and then, you know, you gradually warm them up and then hopefully by the third issue when, and fourth issue, when it gets a little more intense, they're with you. Um, so uh, for the most part, it is the script. There were some things I took out. Like the last issue was starting to get like, if I would have done the whole thing, it was getting like 40 pages and stuff. And like, mm. that's going to be so much larger than all the rest that it's just going to seem like I just larded on stuff. You didn't know how to end it. Right. 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 And so I didn't want to do that because I had some scenes where they're at kind of the, at the one part of the climax there in, in Hawaii on a volcano and stuff. And I had some like godlike figures kind of enter the fray and stuff. And I just feel like, eh, I don't know if that's adding to the story or if it's just me wanting to make more jokes and, Am I just bogging things down? So I never wanted to bog things down. So I just scotched that sort of thing. Um, but for the most part, yeah, it is a lot what I did, what I originally to put on the page, I got on the page. Nice. Well, and I think it all works out really well. And I do think it ends. I mean, you could do more if you want to. Yes, uh, yes. And that, my, my intent was that would just be like, yeah, they're not going to be a part two or, or an issue six or things like that. I thought it, it went the full circle. If someone said, hey, here's a lot of money, you want to do some more, I would consider it. But I'd be more like, um, you know, not that I want to compare myself to bridesmaids, but, you know, they got a lot of money from new bridesmaids, too. And they said, no, we told the story I want to tell. We're done. And that if I could find a story I want to tell, I would. But if I couldn't, I wouldn't. So, no, and I, you know, and I appreciate that. And I think I get what you're saying. You're like, he's Seth is not saying he's Kristen Wiig, everybody. But what he's saying yeah, is, right. yes, what he's saying is there is something about a story because that is i just watched sing Two the other day and my kids are all adults by the way but i still watch oh. sing Two. um <laughs> and uh it was my my review is objectively terrible but incredibly fun that movie <laughs> there was zero reason for sing Two to exist other than oh. we can get all these people back we can get bono oh yeah we should nice. do that and you're like okay the, the plot is absurd. Like the first thing, I don't know if you saw it, had a plot and it was fun. It was a lot of fun. You're like these actors who you normally think of as actors are singing, you know, Taron Eger Edgerton before he did the Elton John movie and Reese okay, Witherspoon yeah. and um, uh, Scarlett. They sing in this movie. You know, these are actors who sing who you didn't know could sing. And there's right. a plot and whatever. And they have to save a theater. It's fun. There's a German pig who's hysterical. It's great. It ends. The show's over. They made a sec it made so much money. So they're like, you guys all want to come back? We're like, yep. Matthew McConaughey is like, my, there's only movie my kids can see me in. So sure, I'm a koala. <laughs> I'll be go. Objectively terrible. Made a shit ton of money. So I think, I think there's something about that idea of saying, this is how my story ends. And whether you've sold 50 copies of your comic book or you sell 5 million or you're Kristen Wiig, wherever you are on the success scale, it's okay to say as an artist to have that integrity and be like, I've got other stories to tell. I've created a character who can live on in your mind if you want him to. And if I think, and again, because you own it, it's yours. And so if in six months or six years, you're like, I need, I, the only person who can fix this is Ori, then you'll do it. You just, because <laughs> right. he's a social commentary uh, character and because this whole, we don't know. We don't know. I mean, you even miss unsavory smiles in her second in her last panel that's amazing like you know there's a lot you've set up that could happen but it doesn't have to so i just appreciate your willingness as an artist to be like i don't want to be a one-trick pony i've got other stories to tell 
Right. Yeah. And, uh, and absolutely. And so, like you said, if, if something came up, I, I, my hope is that, you know, all the things I satirize will all be solved and then never need any social commentary. You don't need him again. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But that doesn't seem likely. So there'll, there'll be a wellspring of material, unfortunately. But um, again, I think that's what artists can help do is expose this stuff and tell a story for it versus just throwing stats at people, which will never change any minds. So hopefully somehow artists can help change minds through you know, what they do best. And that's tell stories. Right. I agree. And I think our, I think what I do in my classes all the time is, you know, I throw art at them. I make them read. I'm actually in one of my classes. They're currently reading a graphic novel. And I have had a student send me like an email the week before the class started. And she's like, I ordered the book and then a comic book showed up. And I was like, this can't be right. So you should just read it first. Why don't you read it? And then we'll, and then in discussion posts, because I teach online, she wrote, she's like, I even thought this was a joke. And then I was like, oh, this is not a joke. There's so much, because again, if you don't read comic books, right? and you, and the best part, the thing that I really like is that you are coming from comic strips and yet you still manage to find, because I think people, again, misread, as we already said, they misread Transformers, but I think people misread Peanuts. Yes. Absolutely. I, I, yeah. And I mean, it's much more, I mean, yeah, everything's, oh, it's, you know, Lucy pulling the ball out and making Charlie Brown look like a doofus. There's so much philosophy in there. There's so much, and you know, Charles M. Schultz is very religious and stuff, which I'm not necessarily, but um, even that, you know, it's, you can get the broader sense of what he's trying to get as, you know, try and be a good human being. Um, we're all going to have down days, but we have friends there to help pick us up. So um, yeah. just try to all get along. I mean, you could easily just as a literary criticism exercise, as somebody who used to teach literary theory, um, you could easily put a religious lens over peanuts and Linus can be John the Baptist. And just throw <laughs> have, I mean, I mean it like if you don't if you think I'm crazy, people go pick up a few and then think about it from that perspective. And, you know, not to say that Charlie is Jesus, but he kind of is. And if you want to see it, if you apply the lens, it's clearly there. Oh, absolutely. I agree. Yes. I never thought of Linus as John the Baptist, but now that you said that, that makes perfect sense. His faith is unwavering. I yes. mean, the, oh, entire... just the way he, he delivers the monologues and things like that. You just see him. as like the most the to say from on high. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I like the whole great pumpkin. Yes. Right. Oh, I mean, yes. That's to me, that is his, that's when you realize who Linus is. And then there's like, and again, Linus is also just a four-year-old or a six-year-old right. or whatever, but he's also, his faith is unwavering over anybody. Absolutely. And Sally is his convert. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, yes. And then I don't know subversively, that's why, you know, subconsciously, that's why it was, you know, peanuts appealed to me so much because I did grow up, you know, in a religious household. And, it's like, and hey, from the Midwest, he's right from the right. next door. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. If you were close enough to watch Mr. Science Theater, on TV, um, you must be right near the Minnesota border then. Um, I'm not that close, but we were able to get, so I, actually how we got it was we got tapes. So oh, we oh, from the Wisconsin, so we would get tapes of that from people. So we were, we were even more underground than it was. So you, you know, were getting cassettes from the public access channel. Right, we're getting VHS, VHS tapes and we were watching them and yeah, it was just like, yeah. I mean, and you remember the VHS tapes where you'd be lines through it. You just oh yeah, yeah. Many times it's like, you can barely hear the audio, but you know, it was enough. So. Oh, it was enough. I'll tell you those shows. I mean, that's once, when it finally came to Comedy Central and you could watch it, then for a while they would run it. It was every Sunday at midnight. 
Yep. I was like, I don't have an 8 a.m. class because I am going to stay up and watch. Because, you know, that was, again, <laughs> you could find people don't realize that that buying an audio, a videotape was expensive. And, right. and, you know, so it's like you didn't want to. So you just stay up and watch. Just boil, yeah. make a pot of coffee at 1130 and get ready for Mr. Science Theater 3000 at midnight. And uh, man, so good. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I appreciate knowing that, too, that that's your um, sensibility because it's there because that rubs people the wrong way. It is not. And, for, it is not. for. Oh, everybody. yes. Oh, the show itself. You're saying it. Yes, yeah. it does. There's who just just like, yeah, you'll get people who just like you're watching people watching a show. What on earth is this about? Yeah, so. my wife hates it with a passion. Okay. So it's funny <laughs> that when Joel when Joel came, when I saw them live, my wife saw it first because I'm not on Facebook or anything. And so uh-huh. there was a local theater near us where we actually have season tickets for the Broadway shows and stuff. Uh, uh-huh. Somehow I didn't get the email yet, but she saw it on social media. So like my phone dings and I look and it's from my wife and it says, I think you need to go do this. So I just went by myself because she knew how important it would be to me, but she didn't want to go. So she's like, so I did. It was like pre COVID the day after Thanksgiving. So on black Friday, I went and saw no retreat, no surrender live Joel and the boss. That yes, that, it was yes. awesome. Right. Yeah. I, I, mean, hope, I hope they can do another tour. Cause I, I would go see them again. I would our- go again. Yeah. Even if it wasn't with that, even Joel, Joel's done officially, but right. it's, it's fine. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. And uh, so I, I do appreciate knowing, hearing all that about you and getting your sensibility of what it is. And I, I, and I think that's why comic books are amazing because you can take a comic strip and it'll be as subversive or as direct as you want it to be. You can take a comic book, you can make the social commentary about how the difference between Batman and Superman and that Bruce Wayne is a capitalist. Bruce Wayne is a Rockefeller and Clark Kent is Karl Marx, right? I mean, like he's a socialist and he's a capitalist and they are not, that's why they're, you want to say they're fighting for all these other reasons, but it's because they're coming at it from a totally different perspective, sociologically and politically. That's there if you want it to be there. Right. Yeah. So that's, and you know, that's, I think what inspires the writers themselves. Cause I mean, yes, there are plenty of people who will be a hack and just like, here's a, just a straight, like you said, straightforward story with action, you know, basic dialogue and stuff like that, where there's other people who are just like, you know what, I'm an adult. I have ideas and philosophies and, and political perspectives. I want to get out there and I can do it through this medium. And that's yeah. what makes it so wonderful. And because you do layers, because Ori's friend is a pickle. And he, you know what I mean? Like you you layer it. Like there's that base humor for whomever. And then, and even Mad Magazine is that way, right? You could just read it and it's just silly, but then you're like, oh, there's something else. You layer it. So on its surface, I mean, I've read this several times because again, we've been going back and forth for months. So I've read it several times, but like you, on its surface, it's one thing. But what I appreciate about what you've done is you've given us a rereadable story that um, deserves to be reread. Because even just, and I like a good background pun. You have you have visual background puns like Mark Russell's Flintstone, uh, Steve Pugh. His whole background is full of like amazing visual puns. If you have not read Mark Russell's Flintstone run, I okay. cannot tell you how perfect it is. It is twelve right. issues of perfection. You will love it. It is totally your sensibility. I'm making a list here. You give me yeah, lots yeah. of ideas. Yeah, yeah. Mark Russell's Flintstone. Mark Russell, Steve Hugh. It was a DC Comics, but it was done for their Hanna Barbera line. Uh, I'm telling you what you it. The voice of reason is Pebbles, and um, uh, she's a teenage. She's an angsty teenager. Uh, it's so good. It's 
it's spectacular. It is like 12 perfect issues of, of satire. But then there's like visual puns and then there's like fart jokes and everything else. And you do it all. So I just appreciate you giving us something that is basic because as you acknowledge, your art skills are not, you're not Steve Pugh. Um, but what you're giving us is a smart, rereadable story that that is a time capsule, but also I like a story that exists in the time that it's written, but can also reflect back on that. Or you never know, like these are Jane Austen books right here. At any point in time, I can pick one of those up and it's about right now. Right. Pride and Prejudice is one of my favorite books. So I, I reread that now and then. Um, but yes, uh, yeah, I, you know, and as an artist, you always want something that can be, you know, more of a legacy where it's like, yeah, you can go back and then, but yes, there are certain things, especially humor. Humor does not, you know, the shelf life of humor can be very short sometimes. So, and satire tends to work better. And that's why Animal Farm is one of my favorite books because that's another book where on space can just be a kid's book about, you know, four legs good, two legs bad, that sort of thing. But it's also, you know, about the Russian Revolution or it could be about any sort of insurrection or not insurrection, but some sort of, you know, oppressed people going up against none and then they get turned the wrong way around. So. Yeah, actually, there's nothing that made me cry harder in my life is when Boxer kicks the doors. Oh. When Boxer comes to realize what's happening, because obviously the whole time everybody else knows, but when Boxer realizes what's happening to him, man, I will. I was a hot mess. I'm getting a little upset thinking about it. I was a hot mess the first time I read that. I Every time I think about Boxer, because I think I have a little Boxer in me. My thing is always I will work harder, whatever it is. Yeah. And so. Uh, even as a kid, I grew up on a dirt farm, you know, so it's like you just work for free for your grandparents. So you're like, I get, I get you, boxer. I, I have a shirt. I'm not wearing it. It actually says make Orwell fiction again. <laughs> yes. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh. oh, well, this is, man, this is, I, I, it was, I, it was worth it to me. I apologize. It's taken so long, but this has been a delight. Oh, it, wonderful. Thank you so much. Yes, I appreciate it. I don't care how long it took. You are a wonderful host. I'm not just trying to flatter you. I've listened you. to tons of your podcasts and you are just wonderful. So I will Thanks. keep listening. I appreciate that. That means a lot. And I want, obviously got to get my hands on Bigly because I can't believe I missed it. So I will be getting <laughs> that. So if someone wants to get that and I, you have another uh, series and a pen name, if yes. I would like to read too. So let's tell everybody as we're ending. So there's final two questions. The final question is, Who's this for? And then we say, how do we reach you? Um, I guess there's three, because also, what's your soundtrack? <laughs> well, being of the 80s, my soundtrack is stuck in the 80s, unfortunately. So I don't have a ton of new stuff to No, that's to okay. Get. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I, I my, you know, Duran Duran was my jam for the longest time. So um, Hungry Like the Wolf. I don't know if it's because I love werewolves or what, but- uh, that, well, I'll that's... play that. We'll play, actually, the last show that came out it'll be two weeks before this one comes out. Um, I actually played um, Shadows Are On Your Side because we did a book oh. called Shadow Service. So uh -huh. listen, Duran Duran, it was my first concert, the Notorious Tour. Oh, really? I was 13 years old. Yep, they played in Chicago. It was them and an, an unfortunate sad news because it was when he had just left Erasure or De Depeche Mode and started Erasure. It wasn't that uh -huh. Andy, it was the other Andy who left. But he Erasure opened for Duran Duran. Oh man, you there, they, wow. They hadn't even put out an album yet. Did you they, save that ticket? I wish. I was like 13. What a dumbass. <laughs> right? no, yeah, Duran Duran in Chicago. That was with Eraser opening. It was it was the notorious and notorious bangs. It's the forgotten gem. 
Yes. Yep. Notorious is like one of the best rock albums of all time, but we'll definitely play Hungry Like the Wolf. I love that on the way out because we talked about where it was. Okay. So that's excellent. So um, who do you think, who's this for? Like, are you hoping to convert people to your point of view or are you writing it to people who already have your point of view? Um, I, I would love to be able to convert people to my point of view, but as we know, that's very hard to do. People have their own tribes. And so bringing a new tribe is tough to do. Um, but if I can open minds and, you know, I, the, the thing that I like to do most is, is just try, like you said, you know, if you're on two levels, you can get people with the funny part and then maybe they'll get the thoughtful part. And so that's what I'm hoping I can do is that people can do that. Um, if you're of my, you know, my political leanings or just my sensibility, I think, uh, yes, you should enjoy this. Um, um, but again, yes, well, the more people who can read it, I, you know, obviously as a, as a writer, you want as, you know, exposure as much people as possible, but, um, but yeah, I think it, I think obviously it's not for kids. Um, I would say 15 and up, 18 and up, that sort of thing. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I think there's an, there's something in there for everyone if you're willing to look for it. So awesome. I love that. I agree with all of that. And so if people want to look for this or bigly or your other stuff under your other secret name, um, <laughs> which is in the back of your book. So it's not like it's a, it's Devin K no. Smith, Smith with the Y, but if yes. people want to read any of that stuff besides like you have them, you have the links to Amazon, but you have a website too. So tell people all the stuff. Sure. I, I do not have a website. I, like you, I'm not on social media just because I never got it. I never felt the need to hard. be yeah. And then it became toxic. Like I know you found it. So I have, um, yes. I'm not getting into it. Um, but yes, I have my email in there. So sethlevens at gmail.com if you want to contact me. Um, uh, as Tony mentioned, I have another series, which is Young Adult. So I used a different pen name there because I want to confuse people with something that's more adult, something that's aimed at more like eight to 12 year olds. So it's a science fiction uh, series um, called the New Dakota series. It's about uh, some uh, post-nuclear war apocalyptic type stuff, but um, it got some good reviews. So if people want to check that out, I think adults would enjoy it too. Um, but yeah, it's more aimed at young adults. So, um, and Bigly, yeah, that's just something I wrote. I donate all the proceeds, which haven't been many, to Planned Parenthood um, just because, um, and I know he's out of office. Hopefully he's not coming back into office. But um, hopefully he goes to jail. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think that's important, though, especially now. Um, The show I did a couple of weeks ago about uh, genderqueer, you know, I've tried to encourage people to if they're not going to buy that book, at least like donate to a glad chapter or something. You know, it's it matters. Like, again, you said art matters. And I wouldn't be an English teacher if I didn't think art mattered, if I didn't think that was, you know, I'm not not just a writing teacher. I'm an English teacher and I teach art and I think. I think art is the way we learn how to be the, the way to be Leo McGarry. The way to be a person <laughs> is to read art. No, it's true. Like, like you said, Pride and Prejudice. I mean, we have a set of Jane Austen books in every room in our house. And the reason for that is, is because you never know when you need advice from the world's greatest satirist. And yeah. people think Jane Austen is just about getting smooched and getting hitched. And it's not about any of that. It is, but it absolutely isn't. And there's a cl- commentary on class and gender so good and you know i'm still i mean are you convinced we'll just leave the recording this has nothing to do with it are you convinced that mary bennett is gay or asexual <laughs> i see and before we started this i was yeah. today because you are an omnivore you have this this <laughs> wealth of knowledge and stuff oh, and you're just dropping all these things and sorry like, yeah Man, am i gonna be able to keep up but yes i i know pride and pride is pretty good i would say she's well 
And and that's the beauty of, of just art in general and why it's lasting is because yeah. it does have these layers. Um, and I would say she's probably more lesbian than asexual. But yeah, I think that my wife thinks she's asexual. My wife's like, no, I think Mary's not interested in anything other than books. And that the reason because there's other re- people who read it and think she's in love with Mr. Collins. Oh, OK. Because well, and that's, again, the you, beauty is that you can discuss yeah, this stuff. And I get like, that, too. I'm like, oh. She. Maybe I always have thought she's in love with Mr. Collins because he's a religious person and so is she. And so I had an I had an auntie who was a maiden aunt because she was Catholic and clearly gay. And so she like repressed herself. And so that was Mary Bennett to me. It was like my Aunt Agnes and Mary Bennett are the same person, that person who if you weren't so devoutly Catholic, you would be happier. And I think Mary Bennett is so religious. Sure. Yes. Yeah. That she can't let herself be. But my wife thinks she just isn't interested at all, which also, and again, totally fun to read. So yeah, um, I love it. I love it. I'll read your new Dakota series because I love a good uh, YA, you know, I love a good. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you so I mean, the new Dakota series. So it takes place. Are you trying to get rid of Kisty Gnome from the Dakotas? Is that what we're doing? Is she, did she start the end of the world? Is that what happened? <laughs> no, this is more, this is more, um, uh, <laughs> Growing up, this again, this is this Gen X thing for yeah. us. We were told about, you know, there's 10,000 nukes. We can destroy the world, you know, 100 times over and stuff. So that's kind of where the genesis of this one came is like, all right, what if that happened? Yeah. How do we survive after that? So if, that's Sting, if Sting didn't write Russians and save us all, it all comes back to, <laughs> I it's funny though, like, you know, when that song came out, when people who don't know, Sting wrote an anti nuclear war song called Russians. Um, and he actually redid it not that long ago after the invasion. He, I saw it on oh. YouTube where he he sang it and it's like, oh, he cut a few lines, but it's like, oof, still pretty poignant. I, um, but anyway, yeah, people don't remember every day, like the, the thought of having to do every day could be your last day because, you know, we read on the beach and, you know, all of those nuclear fallout, like like dystopian books from the 50s we read in the 80s because we were still living in the cold war yeah people forget right well they had the day after came out and it's like that freaked oh. everyone oh man <laughs> that was rough yeah well i'm excited and so everybody should go get bigly for sure we'll put a link in all the show notes but especially so even if you're not going to go buy bigly you should just go donate to your local planned parenthood yeah. because you know don't be an asshole right yeah. And so I appreciate this. And we didn't get as political as we could have because we wanted to keep. But in the world, the world right now as we're recording this is upside down. And I appreciate you spending some time making light of some of the upside down. So thank you. Seth. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Tony. I appreciate your time. And oh, uh, yes, it was totally worth it. I apologize. So um, it took so long. But yeah, when I read the new Dakotas, I will I will release some reviews of those as well. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Tony. Excellent. All right. And so we're going to listen to Duran Duran right now. And if you want to send a message to me like Seth did on my website, arfarina.com, you can send me a message. Reply is guaranteed. I totally replied to Seth. It just may take me months to get back to you to get you on the show. But here we are. He did. I improve. I improve. Yeah. So this is the now the second week of June when this comes out, June of 2022. So persistence. Thanks. Thanks for being persistent, Seth. I appreciate it. Thank you, Tony. All right. We'll see everybody next time.